This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Seibin. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up, and we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about this week, including the Mac Pro not being for you, given its cost and uh, very robust hardware. Uh, Apple has a new FPGA video editing solution to go with that Mac Pro that I thought was interesting and continues some discussions we've been having in regards to FPGA technology. We'll also look at how NVIDIA could win the game streaming market with their approach to PC gaming. We'll talk about EULAs and ownership of software. Uh, This is in response to what we talked about last week uh, with Adobe revoking some licenses of Creative Cloud software and threatening Uh, their users with potential lawsuits. Uh, We'll also look at some competitively priced Adobe alternatives that are one-shot purchases that don't require subscriptions and deliver very similar functionality. Uh, We'll talk about YouTube's ad pods that some of you have been experiencing, and we're going to wrap things up with some UFOs. Okay, lots to talk about now, so let's get to it. I want to thank our supporters this week. They are Josiah Guernsey and Justin Keir. Uh, they both gave super chats during the premiere of the wrap-up last week. I always like to do premieres of this video because I can connect with all of you while it's running, and it's a lot of fun to do. I won't be able to premiere this video this week, but whenever I'm able to, I do. And of course, Monday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time is when I do it, and I love chatting with all of you while we watch the video together. On the Extras channel this week, we unboxed the Lenovo Smart Clock, and it looks like that video is getting some views, so I'll probably do the review here this week on the main channel. This is a Google Home device that is a lot smaller than some of the other screen-based Google Home devices out there, so we'll do a closer look at that one. On the main channel, we did a full review of a gaming tablet, and notice that I put gaming in quotation marks because it's not much of one. Uh, We also took a look at the Lenovo A940 desktop. It's an all-in-one with a 4K display and pen support, and it kind of works a little bit like the Surface Studio for drafting if you want to try out that. And we also took a look at a couple of thermal imaging cameras from FLIR that bolt onto the bottom of your smartphone. I've always been wanting to play with one of these and finally had a chance to do it. Uh, We looked at their consumer camera called the FLIR 1 and the FLIR 1 Pro and compared the image quality out of both. Uh, The Pro, of course, has better image quality, more temperature sensitivity. It's probably better for contractors, but they really are pretty cool and very easy to use. And you can see, again, everything down below in the master playlist. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind. And this is week 119 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And I'll be doing a little bit of business traveling next week. Uh, because on Thursday, there's another Pepcom show in New York City. Uh, These are those little mini trade shows that I go to from time to time where a bunch of consumer electronics companies come to one room, and in about an hour and a half, I can see probably 15, 20, or 30 of them, depending on how many show up and bring you back a pretty cool dispatch of what I experienced. So that will be uh, coming up probably Friday, next Friday, uh, on the channel. And then That weekend, there's going to be another SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch. Now, these launch dates slip all the time, but right now it looks like they're slated for the 22nd. 
and I'm probably going to go down to that because we got a great view of the launch last time, but not the landing, and I really want to get a view of that uh, booster set coming down pretty much not right in front of us, but pretty close to where we will be situated there. So I will keep you posted when that launch happens, and I think there might be some celebrity people down there that you might want to hear from too, so I'm hoping to uh, make that a pretty fun trip. So stay tuned, more to come on that. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. And of course, the big news out of Apple this week was their new Mac Pro. It kind of resembles the original Mac Pro in some ways. It's got that cheese grater look to it. But this one, of course, is very different and finally meets, I think, the standards that many professional users have been asking for. They really went nuts with this thing. Uh, It'll take about a terabyte and a half of RAM. Uh, You can have 140 gigabytes per second of memory bandwidth, six-channel memory on this thing. Uh, You can run a tremendous amount of graphical horsepower with it as well. It is just crazy uh, how powerful this machine is. Unfortunately, though, it starts at $6,000 for the base model, uh, which is way out of my price range, unfortunately, especially given that I don't need all that horsepower for what I do. Uh, But there are people who need this kind of performance, and they can now get it if they can afford it. And of course, those who would use this are very high-margin businesses like high-end TV and movie production, audio production houses, uh, and other folks like that. And I think it's probably going to be something Apple will not sell a lot of, uh, but will sell a good amount to keep those pro users happy. Now, another thing they did in addition to that computer, which starts at $6,000 and is estimated to go up to thirty-five dollars fully decked out, uh, you can also buy a really nice display. Uh, But unfortunately, these displays start at around $5,000 with uh, the basic uh, glass panel on it. And then they've got a special etched glass for a better image that will cost you six grand. And what's crazy about this display is that the stand you see there is extra. Uh, So just to get the monitor mounted, you either have to pay 200 bucks for a visa mount or $1,000 for a stand, and you got to check out the reaction from the crowd when they announced this right at the end of the product intro. And the Pro Stand, $9.99. And like the Mac Pro, they'll all be available in the, in the fall. So, as you can see there, it was even uh, kind of dumbfounding the Apple fans in the room, and I know why they're doing this, I know why these customers are willing to pay this much, but it really is kind of peak Apple, I think, for what they're doing. I do hope, though, that a lot of what is being introduced here with the Mac Pro might work its way down to some of their more affordable products. I have an iMac that I bought and still use from about three or four years ago. It's doing everything I need for the production that I do on this show. My MacBook Pro that is almost two and a half, three years old now, also just fine. In fact, we have a MacBook Pro from 2012 that is still working great here on the channel. I don't need any of this stuff, but I'm hoping that Apple might look at some kind of modular option at the lower end because one of the things that I'm very nervous about is if my iMac has a component go on it, I got to lug the whole thing over to my Apple store 45 minutes away, drop it off, wait for them to fix it, and then go back and pick it up again. Uh, Whereas if I had a modular system where maybe a component died like a GPU or a hard drive or something, it would be a lot easier to get that fixed. I think the Mac Mini is probably the best solution at this point for those of us who don't want that all-in-one a solution like an iMac, but it's still not as good as what they've introduced here with the tower, uh, minus, of course, the $1,000 monitor stand and everything else that goes along with it. Years ago, the Mac Pro was available at an entry point, and I'm hoping at some point maybe they'll do something similar for those of us who just don't need all of this horsepower, but 
would like a modular Mac to work with. Now, one thing that really uh, intrigued me was the Afterburner card. Uh, this is designed for people doing really high-end 4K and 8K video. And what it allows people to do is bring in raw data from their fancy 8K cameras and process, I think, three streams of raw video in real time at 8K, which is something I don't think any PC can really do right now without having to transcode into some proxy media. And this is an area where people that are doing that level of high-end production are going to save a lot of money because you don't have to take the time to uh, bring in all that media, transcode it for ingestion, uh, edit it, and then match everything back up with your mainline clips for final uh, encoding. You can actually work off the original files right out of the camera, and I think it's going to speed up a lot of workflows for folks. And this has an FPGA that is managing uh, that video flow. Now, of course, we're seeing a lot of FPGAs in the retro gaming world, like the Mr. Project, which we did some videos on, and the uh, analog consoles. And these are chips that are massively parallel. They're very well-tuned for this kind of work, where you've got a lot of different things happening at once that all have to be done at the same time. Uh, great execution here. And there's been some uh, talk, as these FPGA chips have been coming down in price, what might we see happen with them? Well, here's a great example of that. Now, one thing that I've been using an FPGA with for video production for some time is my TriCaster. Uh, that is what I use to make the videos that you see every single day here on the channel. Uh, that has an FPGA that does all of the real-time video processing when I'm shooting this video and everything else that I do. Uh, the TriCaster, by the way, uh, is also a $6,000 device, but it was worth it for me because it really is a tool that speeds up my workflow and I could justify the cost of purchasing it. And this thing certainly has paid for itself over the years without question. My channel grew tremendously uh, because of the ability of the TriCaster to make my workflow much more efficient. So that's a good purchase, but for me, a Mac Pro would not be given that I don't need that level of efficiency for my editing, but it's pretty cool to see what's happening out there and how these FPGAs are making their way into products we all might use one day. Now, Google this week finally released details of their new Stadia game streaming service. Uh, this will allow you to play high-end 4K 60 frames per second games on your low-end hardware because you're going to be streaming it over the internet to your home. And they have a pre-order up right now for a bundle that includes a Chromecast Ultra and a special Stadia controller. Now, the controller, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is going to connect directly to the internet. So there's going to be a reduced amount of input latency given that direct connection versus having to hop through your Chromecast or your phone or something else first. I thought that was a very cool idea, and we'll see how well that works in execution. But you don't need to order anything because their plan here is to have this work with whatever you got. So even low-end, you know, cheap Walmart tablets should be able to do something with this. But again, the latency will be better uh, if you get that Stadia controller. Now, the cost on this, I think, is going to be something that may or may not work so well. Uh, the service itself is going to be free, but you have to buy the games to play with it. You're not going to get anything for free to play unless you buy a game. And if you are on the base service here, which is the free tier, uh, you can only play those games at 1080p at 60 frames per second with stereo sound. Now, if you pay 10 bucks a month, uh, you can get the 4K resolution, 5.1 channel sound. Uh, you'll have a few free games that you can play 
uh, on that service as well. But it looks like a lot of what's going to happen here with Stadia will be you buying the game and also paying for the streaming service. And this has been leaving some gamers with some doubts and skepticism as to whether or not this is actually going to work. And of course, given Google's propensity for killing projects after they start it, uh, we'll have to see how this pans out. Microsoft also talked about their xCloud game streaming service that's going to debut in October. Uh, This will allow you to stream games from Microsoft servers, but also from your own Xbox if you prefer. So that's kind of a neat thing we'll take a look at when it's available. And my friend Epos Vox on Twitter had a very good uh, little prediction here as to what will happen with Stadia over time. Uh, He sees that it will not be a big hit. It'll do its job. He'll have a small and dedicated user base. And then one day they'll get a notice that says the service is shutting down in three weeks and get your data off of here. And I think that might likely be what happens because that often happens with just about every Google product that doesn't become a rock star hit. So just be aware of that. You might have a great thing for a while, but it might go away. And I've been very concerned about what happens to all of your saved game data that will live in Stadia because this is not going to be like your Steam account or your Epic Games account. It's going to be your Stadia account and your games will be saved in their cloud. And I'm not sure how you might go about making those save games portable to another service. And hopefully they have some way to do that uh, if you choose to leave or they choose to, to leave the business altogether. So we'll have to see what their plans are, are there. Now, I think that NVIDIA is really on the right track with their streaming service. Now, on the NVIDIA Shield, which came out way back when, in 2015, they started with a game streaming service that involved you buying games from them, just like the Stadia model, and streaming them back to yourself. Uh, But they've been adjusting the business model over time. And where they are now uh, is with a service that allows you to connect up to your existing game services that you're using, like Steam or the Epic Game Store, for example. So what I can do on the NVIDIA service is connect up to their cloud. I can play my Steam games that I already paid for, and my save games are synced up to the NVIDIA cloud server. So I was playing No Man's Sky, for example, on the cloud. I left the cloud and went back to my desktop computer, and everything was right where I left it. It really is pretty cool to have a streaming service that is detached from the purchasing of the games. I think Steam works very well, especially for syncing up save games between devices, and it's separate as a platform. So if the streaming service somehow went away one day, I'm not losing all of the time that I spent building up characters and games and all the other stuff that you might do in a game. So I think they're really onto something here. It's still in beta. Right now, the service is free. I did a video on it that you can see linked here on screen. Uh, But ultimately, I think NVIDIA has learned what doesn't work in the streaming industry, and I think they're on to something that does. And I'm very eager to see if they plan to finally roll it out as a full-blown service soon, because I think people will get a lot more value out of a monthly subscription service if it worked with the games they already own. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question comes in from another Lon, uh, in this case, Lon Dog, in regards to software ownership. Now, last week, we were talking about how Adobe sent down an email to people that were using old versions of their software, and Adobe said to them, "Uh, we are pulling the license on this old software. You're no longer allowed to use it, even though these customers felt like they bought the software and should be able to continue using it as long as they want. Adobe said, no way. Uh, You need to stop using it now, and you might be uh, liable for lawsuits from third parties if you continue use of that software. And that, of course, got a lot of people concerned about this new era of subscription-based software we are entering into. 
And Londog here uh, brings up the point, when has a user agreement ever said you own the software? And in most cases, those agreements said you did not. So let's take a look at uh, this Microsoft Windows XP professional end user license agreement. This dates back to the uh, early 2000s. And if you read through it, you'll see that you are being granted a license even if you bought a box and a disc. And that license can be terminated And what Microsoft can do is if they determine that you are not meeting the terms and conditions of the end-user license agreement, uh, they will require you to destroy all copies of the product and its component parts. This is back in the physical media days. Now, could they enforce this on a general consumer? Probably not. Uh, Windows XP, of course, did require activation, so they might be able to pull your activation away, but it would be very difficult for Microsoft to enforce this on anybody But now, while we're in this subscription world where things are a little bit easier to police, those licenses can be revoked much more easily. And I think that is what we're going to start seeing a lot more of, even with just regular general consumers. And I have concerns about uh, Steam, for example, and the Epic Game Store, where your games really only exist in digital form and can disappear whenever the uh, host decides to get rid of them. And it's a big problem. And I think if you went back into... Uh, all of your old software agreements that you never looked at, you'll probably see very similar language, too, across the board. What's interesting, though, is I went back to uh, some of my old video games. I kept a lot of the manuals and some of the things that came with them, and I have yet to find a NES game or a Sega Genesis game that had any kind of license agreement attached to it. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you're buying the cartridge, the physical components of it, Uh, but you were not authorized to distribute the software that was stored on it. And I think those protections, of course, were there for the companies. But it's interesting, though, just to see so much of this language for commercial software and for operating systems, but really not so much on the games. I would love to hear from all of you uh, whether or not there's ever been any kind of end-user license agreement for older stuff. I think for everything we're doing now, you will most certainly get a EULA, and you will most certainly be told that it is not yours, you don't own it, and we're only granting you a license, and now those licenses are very easily revocable. And also in response to that Adobe discussion last week, I got this note from Carrie Lynn that I thought was worth discussing. She's a graphic designer and was using Adobe products, but she got tired of renting her software. And if she is an independent contractor, that's a good amount of overhead that you have to pay every month just to get your software to work. And before, what you would do is you'd buy the software outright, and when you needed to, you would upgrade. And a lot of folks like myself were often fine using the old version of the software for a couple of years before having to pay more because we wanted to make sure there was some value there that justified the expense. And uh, she had enough, so she switched over to Affinity Software. And they've been making very affordable alternatives to the Adobe packages. I'm sure they don't have everything Adobe has, but right now uh, they have a photo app, which is a Photoshop alternative, and an Illustrator alternative. And they're now working on one that will replicate a lot of what Adobe InDesign does. So most of the major pieces of software that a designer might use, they might find a good alternative here. And the crazy thing is that these packages are right now priced at $40 a piece, which is a lot less than what you would pay for an Adobe subscription. In fact, you might make the money back in a month or two if you bought the full suite of everything. I have Affinity Photo on my iPad. It's really robust. It runs great on the iPad. It's very well uh, tied in with all of the uh, Apple API calls that take advantage of the hardware. Uh, The Mac and Windows version here are also very good, according to Kerry there. So I think it's something definitely worth looking at 
if you're tired of paying those fees. The software is very robust. It's got, I think, most of the features that you might find or use in Photoshop. I'm not a big-time photo editor, so I don't know what's missing versus what's in there, but it might be worth downloading the free trial, see how it works, and it might actually save you a lot of money in the end. Uh, There's also a lot of uh, other alternatives, too. I use an app called Pixelmator. Uh, That is on the Mac because when I left my job, I also lost my Adobe account. So the Photoshop uh, app that I was using to do all of my thumbnails, for example, I had to uh, find an alternative. And I went with Pixelmator, the first version of Pixelmator, which for me did everything that I was doing in Photoshop. And I think I spent maybe 30 bucks on it. And I'm still using the same version a couple of years later. I haven't needed anything more powerful. Now, what Pixelmator is doing is... They are adding new features, and then when they have something robust enough, they put it out there as a new purchase. So they now have Pixelmator Pro that incorporates a lot more of the things that you might want to use as a power user. And I think that's fair. If you're going to put more work into something and really deliver more value, then it's fair to ask people to pay again so that they can take advantage of those features. The software industry used to have upgrade uh, charges versus a straight-up full version. So you could upgrade from the prior version at a lower cost. The developers got their money, and everybody was happy, and you can make the choice as to when you wanted to pay for your software. And it's good to see now that we're seeing real alternatives here uh, that are very reasonably priced, and I am very excited about this because it does offer an alternative to this emerging subscription model that I don't think is compatible with a lot of smaller operations like mine. On the video editing side, of course, we've got Final Cut Pro from Apple. Now, of course, Apple makes most of their money on hardware. If nothing else, Final Cut Pro is kind of subsidized by the fact that you're buying new hardware every couple of years to run it. Uh, But I bought Final Cut Pro uh, probably seven years ago when it first came out, this version, Final Cut Pro 10. And I've never had to pay for it ever again, yet I've gotten so many more new features in it over that period of time. It's a completely different application than when I bought it. But I've paid for it once, and that's it, and I continue to use it, and I've been very happy with that. Uh, So I've never had to pay a monthly fee or any kind of fee to use Final Cut the entire time that I've used it. On the Windows side, there's something called DaVinci Resolve that you all might want to take a look at. Uh, This is from Blackmagic Design, which is also a hardware manufacturer. And you can actually get this editing software for free uh, for lower resolution video, I think up to 1080p. And then it's pretty reasonably priced, around the same price as Final Cut for all of the fancier features, too. And this runs on the Mac and on Windows. And if you're a Windows user looking for a robust editor, uh, this might be worth checking out. I am sure there are a lot of other applications out there, too, that you might know about. Definitely let me know down in the comments below on those. And Eric Brunhammer writes in with this question about YouTube running two ads per ad spot now. I've been hearing a lot of people talking about this, that they're seeing a back-to-back ad running before my videos and many others that they watch on the platform. I, of course, am a YouTube Premium subscriber, so I never see any ads on the stuff that I watch. And I have to say, my YouTube Premium subscription is the best value for me because I spend a lot of time watching YouTube videos and not having those ads has been quite pleasurable, actually. So it's something to look at if you are not someone who likes ads. Now, I did do some research here to see exactly what's going on Uh, YouTube started testing something called AdPods uh, back in November. It's kind of a catchy way to sell their product there, I think. Uh, And it looks like that test is becoming more and more a mainline feature of the platform. Uh, So it looks like these AdPods were going to take form in a couple of different ways. You could have two 
back-to-back skippable ads. You could have a skippable ad followed by a six-second unskippable spot. They call those bumpers. Or you could have a bumper followed by a skippable ad. Or you could have two consecutive bumpers for a total of 12 seconds there. That looks like what they were uh, planning to do. I don't know what's currently running, so I'd love to hear from you in our Q&A for you this week uh, what you are seeing with these back-to-back ads. Uh, But what I will say about this whole thing is that uh, for me as a creator, it probably will benefit the creator community because we receive a cut of every ad that you watch to completion or to 30 seconds. And if there are two ads running and you watch both of them, uh, that means we would get double the revenue versus what we would normally get. I don't know how they're pricing these things, if the second bumper is cheaper than the first one, but nonetheless, I think it will equal more dollars for creators, which ultimately makes this a little bit more of a predictable, sustainable place to earn from. And I know it's inconvenient. I know it's something that uh, you don't always want to see. Uh, and hopefully YouTube balances when those ads display for viewers so they're not getting inundated with them. But ultimately, I think it's probably going to be good for creators, even if it's not always so great for viewers. Let me know what you think down in the comments below. And again, let me know if you are seeing these bumper ads and exactly how they are configured. Now, my pick of the week this week is something that has been fascinating me over the last couple of years, and that is uh, all of these recent UFO releases from the U.S. government. And now there's a show on the History Channel Uh, that is diving into this topic and interviewing a lot of the people that have been experiencing this unknown phenomena uh, while they've been out mostly on military exercises in the air and in the ocean. Uh, The show is called Unidentified. I think it's a six-part miniseries on the History Channel. And this all kind of started back in 2017 uh, when the New York Times published an article that you see on the left along with some footage that was released by the U.S. government from fighter jets when they were trying to intercept a bunch of these unknown objects off the coast of San Diego. This actually happened. They picked this stuff up on radar. They have radar operators who have been talking about what they saw on their screens. They sent fighter jets out to intercept these things. The pilots saw these devices visually buzzing around in the air in ways that defy aircraft as we know it. Uh, They also have sonar operators who picked up these devices when they went underwater. Apparently, they could dive into the water, run at 100 knots underwater, and then just as quickly go back up to 30,000 feet. Nobody could explain what these are. Nobody has explained what these things are doing and why they keep popping up in different places. And now we're starting to see more and more people who are very credible people here coming out of the woodwork to talk about the kinds of experiences that they have had with these things, whatever these things are. Now, do I think these are UFOs from another place? Probably not. I think that's probably the least likely scenario. Uh, My thought is is that it's probably some kind of technology designed to trick the high-sensitive instruments that are on uh, U.S. military aircraft because we do have in the United States a technological advantage in many areas related to our aircraft and our naval ships. And if you can design something that can Uh, confuse the operators on these ships if they're seeing things that are not there. That can certainly create some issues. If you can confuse pilots to see this data on their instruments and then can actually visually see these things, that certainly would, I think, throw off pilots and confuse them in a combat situation. So it could be some kind of countermeasure that is just very effective at tricking both humans and their technology. Uh, That's probably the most likely thing, I think. Uh, But it could also be, perhaps, some aircraft technology that humans have developed, maybe some skunk works project that uh, is in the works that 
might really change the way we look at aviation and probably energy generation and storage. That would certainly be very disruptive to the world economy and probably the power balance in the world if suddenly our entire way of generating energy and traveling around could be made obsolete in a heartbeat with some kind of uh, thing like they're seeing out there. And of course, the third thing could be the fact that these are UFOs from outer space. So we'll have to see how uh, these investigations continue. But I think the most likely scenario is probably some kind of countermeasure. Uh, If you want to read more about what one of these incidents was like, you can see this uh, report from the USS Nimitz in 2004, which is probably the most detailed encounter. And this is actually what the History Channel uh, show is starting with. But this is pretty much the narrative that uh, they began their investigations from. And the group that is kind of doing all of this is uh, uh, something called To The Stars Academy. Now, oddly enough, the former lead singer of Blink-182 is the guy that put all this together. And he's been getting all of these well-known within the government officials uh, together to start looking at this issue. And they were the ones that were able to get the military to release what they did for the New York Times article. Uh, They have some very, again, credible people that are working together to try to explain what's going on. Uh, What they are approaching this from is the standpoint that they don't think the government has taken this stuff seriously enough. They feel like Uh, Nobody felt comfortable talking about it, and it could very well be a major threat to national security if some other country has this technology. uh, It certainly would put the U.S. government at risk, and they feel like they need to start talking about this. They need to investigate it and figure out what it is. It could be that it's been ours all along. Who knows? But nonetheless, that's what's going on with this, and it is just fascinating. So check it out. Lots of cool stuff to see in our pick of the week this week. Now this week, if I don't get beamed up to the mothership, I've got a couple of things that I'll be looking at. Uh, The first is I'm going to check out the Brave browser kind of as a review uh, because a lot of people have been talking about this and asking me to try it out, so I'm going to. This is a browser that is privacy-focused, has a built-in ad blocker, and now that we're hearing Chrome might be removing ad blocker support, we've got to find alternatives, and I'm very eager to check this out given... Uh, just how much I've heard about it over the last couple of weeks from all of you. So I'm definitely going to do something on that. Uh, Let me know if there are specific features that I should be looking at while I'm starting to play around with it uh, down in the comments. That'll certainly help that video. Uh, Another thing I'm going to be getting in are a pair of Apple 9.7-inch iPads. And the reason is is that my two daughters have been using iPad minis now Uh, One of them, I think, is about five years old. It is smashed to bits. They need new iPads, and I'm going to get the low-end ones here because I'm sure these will get beat up pretty good, too. I'm going to try to find a better case than what I've been working with. Believe it or not, I had the OtterBox cases on them, and the screen still cracked on those things. So we're going to uh, experiment with some cases, too, but I'll do a review as to what the low-end iPad gets you. Uh, These are selling for $319 right now on B&H's website. And B&H now has that pay-boo thing with the uh, tax, uh, sales tax reimbursement. So I'm going to try all of that out. I'll let you know uh, how that uh, experience is next week on the wrap-up when I do that. And I'm also going to try to take a look at ZoneMinder, which looks like the uh, one open-source security camera system that people are talking about when I asked about that the other day. And we're going to experiment with getting that installed and then seeing how well that works with our WISE RTSP cameras. Because I was eager to see if there is some kind of third-party open-source solution for security systems that uh, works without a lot of restrictions. And I'm going to take a look at ZoneMinder and see exactly whether or not it does that. 
and I might have a couple of other things too if I get to them this week. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. We also have my ongoing relationship with Plex, and if you uh, sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small commission. We get a slightly larger commission if you sign up for a Plex pass or gift it to somebody else. We also have other channels that I do stuff on, including my extras channels for my extras channel uh, for unboxing and supplementary content. I'm also going to start doing a few more live streams over there as I'm tinkering with things too. So be sure to uh, subscribe over there. We have my podcast, which does uh, the audio version of this show every week, along with other things like my radio interviews and that sort of stuff. We have my snippets channel where I put up search-friendly little snippets out of the wrap-up each week that make it easier for folks to find and share with others. And then we have my live stream archive at lon.tv slash live streams where you can see all of my prior live streams that I have done here on the channel. Now, another thing you can do is click on that subscribe bell and you'll get notified every time I do anything on any of my channels. So if you like what I do, I definitely suggest that you do that. Uh, We also have other ways to engage with the channel, including my email list, which is very infrequent. We have my Facebook page where we post up the snippets as well in video form. We have the Facebook group where I interact with all of you and you interact with each other. We're getting close to 700 members there, so it's a great place to engage with fans of the channel. And then we have my store at lon.tv slash store where I sell things that I reviewed here on the channel and I'm now getting rid of. We'll have a few things up there very shortly. And if you sign up for my email alert, you will be notified every time I add something to the store or change the prices of existing inventory. And remember, we only have one of everything, so if you're looking to buy something that I previously reviewed, the store is the place to do it. So that's going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Thank you all for your continued support of the channel. Please keep those comments and questions coming. I love hearing from all of you and interacting with all of you. The Facebook group has been great for that, but we also have some great discussions even in the YouTube comment section too. So keep all that coming. I really appreciate everything, and we'll have another great week here on the channel, hopefully. And until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.tv supporters, including Gold Level supporters, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Tom Albrecht, Brian Parker, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.